This is People of the Book. It's Stephen Kravitz. And we are in the studio with a number of books to review. And at half past 11, we're going to be joined in the studio from Cape Town via Skype by Richard Pierce, who's the author of a book called Nicole, The True Story of a Great White Shark's Journey into History, published by Strake Nature. He'll be joining us to talk about this very, very interesting shark, famous shark, and uh, the plight of the great whites in the world today. But to start off with, we've got a number of novels and one uh, non-fiction book that we're going to be looking at. Uh, it's no one overriding theme, but we've got a bit of Russia. Again, we've got a bit of historical fiction, and then we've got a very contemporary thriller. Uh, we do have a giveaway, the contemporary thriller Fierce Kingdom. I do have an advance to give away on this show. To start off with, let's look at... Um, the the historical fiction that goes furthest back in time. Uh, this is called Court of Lions. It's by Jane Johnson. And it's set in Spain, just at the very end of the reconquest, the, the Catholic reconquest of Spain, set in Granada. And it tells the story of the last... Um, Islam Muslim king, the last Moor king of the city of Granada. Just to say something about the author, Jane Johnson. Um, not only is she a novelist, and this is her fifth book, but she also is. Uh, she works in publishing. She works for Harper Collins, and she's the UK editor for Dean Koontz and also for George R. R. Martin. Uh, who's the author of the Game of Thrones books. She's written the companion to Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movie trilogies. And she writes historic fiction. And some of the books really do take quite a, quite a strong uh, line towards Spain and uh, also to the, the Moorish, the, the Muslim heritage in Spain. And, uh, they, they, they are combinations. This one is a combination between a modern contemporary story and then the historic, the historic part of, um, of the book, of the story. And in terms of history, we're looking at the very, very end of Moorish Spain. We're looking at the, 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 the city of Granada, the magnificent Alhambra Palace, and we're looking at the, the last member of the Moorish royal family that ruled over Granada. And within the book, the historic, the historic people that we do meet, well obviously is the, the last Moors, the last Moorish king, and then there's also Isabella and Ferdinand, the king and queen of Spain, one from Aragon, one from Castile, combine their kingdoms in order to unite Catholic Spain against all other people living in the Iberian Peninsula. We obviously know that the year 1492 was the year of the, the, the expulsion of the Jews from Spain, uh, it was also the year that Granada fell and 
uh, Isabella and Ferdinand finally had consolidated Catholic rule over all of Spain. It's also the year that the Muslims were also forced out of Spain or forced conversions. And the, the story really is from the Moorish and the Catholic perspectives. There are no Jews in the story, but it's interesting to see the history from another perspective. Now, before I discuss the actual story, just an author's note, because it really does put a lot of things in um, in context. And here, Jane Johnson writes, I first visited the Moorish Palace Complex in Granada, the Alhambra, over 20 years ago. And like everyone who walks beneath its graceful arches and gazes upon its serene pools and lacy geometric stonework, fell under its spell. We all think we know the story of the fall of Granada, that great hinge point in Western history, beginning the momentous year of 1492. How after handing the keys over to Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand, the young sultan turned for one last time to look upon the city he loved. How his mother derided him for weeping like a woman for what you could not hold like a man. How that spot is called Pass of the Moors Sire. But when I started in on some serious research, I soon discovered that this was largely made up by Antonio de Guevara, Bishop of Gordix for the benefit of Emperor Charles V, when he visited Granada on his honeymoon in 1526, and that history, from both the Christian and Muslim perspectives, had treated that young sultan, Abu Abdullah Muhammad, known as Boabdil, very cruelly. So I wanted to tell his personal story, as well as recount the great sweep of events leading up to the fall, which the poet Frederica Garcia Lorca described as a calamity, leading to a new dark age. The book was shaping up to be a straightforward historical epic, but one day in 2013, the producer who was interested in making a film of one of my previous books, The Sultan's Wife, told me about a discovery by a storers in the Alhambra Palace. While moving one of the great doors, they had come upon a scrap of paper that had been hidden deep in the intricate latticework of the wood. It appeared to be an ancient love letter, but the provenance of the note and the identity of the scribe remain a mystery. The movie deal sadly stalled, but the story was a gift, and I remembered another Lorca quote, In Spain, the dead are more alive than the dead in any other country in the world. And that got me thinking about how the past and present arc toward each other, and how love is an eternal force. And I thought, what if a series of tiny notes, love letters maybe, or spells, written in the 15th century, were to come to light in the 21st? And Court of Lions turned into quite a different book to the one I had originally envisaged. So the story of Kate Fordham wrapped itself around and through the tale of the young sultan growing up in the most beautiful palace on earth, the two stories, two, two storylines interlinked, yet at the heart of a terribly fractured family, providing echoes and parallels and points of contrast, and the mystery focused on the enigmatic scraps of paper found in the wall, this novel grew. Now, in the, sto- in the book, there are two stories. There's a story of Kate Fordham, who is working in Granada in modern day, in the modern day city. Uh, it's a city that lives by the tourist trade, and people come to see the the Alhambra Palace and the remains of Moorish Granada. And she's obviously fled England, and she's living 
under an assumed name. No one knows her real name. And she's making a life for herself while she tries to put the pieces of her life together. And at the same time, we start the historical story. She's in the Alhambra Palace one day, and she she discovers a note hidden in the latticework, and she takes it. And that starts the story to where where did this note come from? And then we have inter we have inter, inter, interposed chapters between Kate in the modern day, following her story, why she's on the run from England, who she's running from, her sister who's back in England, and her nephew who's staying with her sister, uh, obviously. And that's her story. But the back the the, the, the historical storyline involves um, a, a a slave who has been brought. By, bought by the advisor to the king, the, the, one of the chief advisors to the king, sports a, a, a slave so that the slave can be a friend to the prince. This is the prince who's eventually going to become the sultan who hands the kingdom of Granada over to Isabella and Ferdinand. And it's the slave's story and his love for the prince and his total self-sacrifice to the prince but the slave himself isn't a moor he's a slave who was captured from a saharan desert tribe today we call them the taregs and he wasn't really a muslim by birth and there's a lot of superstition folklore uh pagan beliefs that this young slave brings into the story and amulets and spells and it's the story of the the last sultan of granada but from his 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 friend's perspective and it's all the intricacies in in moorish spain marriage into the royal family how the royal families conducted themselves within this beautiful palace, the Alhambra. The Alhambra itself becomes a character in the book because it is so magnificent and it affects their lives so much. And the two stories intertwine around each other in the Court of Lions. The Court of Lions is the name of one of the courts in the Alhambra um, palace. This is it's it's good historical fiction with the modern current going through as well. And the, the two stories do tie up very nicely towards the end. And we see the momentous downfall of Moorish Spain before the end of the book. Be back with a little bit more on Court of Lions and then a contemporary novel and a giveaway straight after this ad break. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. Now, we're looking at a contemporary novel. It's called Fierce Kingdom. It's by Jim Phillips. And for anyone who has read books like, we need to talk about Kevin or Room, where you're dealing with basic, basic human survival, this is another book to add to that list. The book is set in a few hours in a zoo in New York City. And... Joan, she's a young mother, is in the zoo with her four-year-old son, Lincoln. And it's close to closing time, and they start walking from where they 
were playing in a sandpit in the zoo towards the exit, the, 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 the gates of the zoo. And in the distance, they hear a popping sound. And they just keep moving towards the exit. They want to get out before the zoo is locked up, before it becomes difficult to get out the zoo. And very close to the exit of the zoo, they hear more of these popping sounds. And Joan, the mother, sees people falling on the ground and two men with guns running into the toilet to look for people. And she realizes that they've been caught in the zoo in a massacre, in a gun massacre. And she, she re, the maternal instincts kick in. She's prepared to do anything to keep her son alive. The, the, the zoo is under lockdown. No one can get out. There are people lying dead on the ground. She can't tell that to her son. And it's the next few hours while she is in the zoo trying to guarantee her, her and her son's survival. Now, this book, it's a thriller. Uh, it was the buzz book at the Frankfurt, Frankfurt Book Fair in 2016, which, which means that a lot of publishing houses were interested in publishing this book. It then went to a hotly contested auction preempts around the world with rights sold in 20 territories and counting. So the publisher is expecting Fierce Kingdom to be one of those books that everyone will be talking about. And it is one of those books. It's a very contemporary book. She's in the... It, she, they find a hiding place and everyone's thinking, so just use your cell phone and call the police. Well, the police are on their way, but the police can't come in because they don't know who, who's got the guns. Uh, and who's just an innocent person caught in the caught caught in the the zoo? At the same time, she uses her cell phone to communicate with her husband. But even if it's on silent, it's later. It's, it's, it becomes night time, and so if she opens her cell phone, the light will give her away, and the cell phone becomes more danger than s- solution. One of the main themes of the book is. A mother's love for her son and how she is prepared to protect her son in what is a basic, basic survival environment. Now, I do have a copy of the book to give away. So all we need is your name, the title of the book you're currently reading, and then give us a a WhatsApp or or an SMS. The SMS line is 34519, and the WhatsApp number is 0621482374. If you've won something in the last three months, don't enter. Let other people win something here on High FM. So it's, it's a powerful thriller. It can be very tense at times, uh, but it's one of those books that really make you think about the, the 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 value of a life lived and when it all comes down to what really does make life worth living and the idea of being a parent the idea of of loving your children listening to them uh the book will make you want to hug your children make sure that they know that you love them beyond the universe um so that the book's called Fierce Kingdom and it's a very, very, very powerful book. And so if you want to win a copy of this book, it's SMS us on 34519, WhatsApp us on 0621482374. 
the name of the book that you're currently reading and your name. And then our office will be in contact with you so that you can get, you can get your, um, you can get your, your prize. And there's a few, a few, few responses have come through and we've got people reading boy books. There's the boy behind the curtain and the boy on the wooden box. So that's a nice change to all the girl books, girl on a train and everything else that came out with girl in. That's Fierce Kingdom. Now, the next two books I'm going to look at until we get to our interview with, um, with Richard Pierce in Cape Town, we're going to go to Russia. And the first, the first stop in Russia is going to be St. Petersburg. And that's the title of the book. It's written by Jonathan Miles, and it's called Three, St. Petersburg, Three Centuries of Murderous Desire. It is a, it's, it's a history of the city. It's a very well written and powerful history of St. Petersburg. It's a thick book, so you really do get a lot of value for your money in a book like this. And it's a theme that I've started here on my own book shows on Chai FM that I like looking at cities. Early on in the year, we reviewed a book called Istanbul by Bettany Hughes. Today, we're going to be looking at St. Petersburg. And that's just reminded me, I wanted to mention, when it comes to Court of Lions, which is sitting in the Alhambra, a lot of it's sitting in the Alhambra Palace in Granada, and it's all about the end of Moorish Spain. Bettany Hughes... I found a video that she gave, uh, it's, on, it's on YouTube, about when, it's titled When the Moors Ruled in Europe. And to have watched that video before I read the book, and to see the magnificence of the Alhambra Palace, and to see the geometry that went into constructing this palace, gave a whole different perspective to the book. So when the book does mention the Alhambra Palace again and again and again, I've got these pictures in my mind of the mere mathematical formula that we use for constructing this an unbelievably beautiful palace. And if anyone want, is going to read Court of, palace, Court of Lions, I'd recommend that you look for that Bettany Hughes video called When the Moors Ruled in Europe. Watch that and read the book at the same time. And if you're not going to read the book, still watch that, 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 that documentary because it is fascinating. So that's, um, that's my, 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 my mission to review books about specific cities. Now I've, uh, I want to discuss St. Petersburg, but that'll have to wait after this ad break. Then we'll go across the world to St. Petersburg and then one more Russian novel. The best part of your day. At the heart of your community. All the talk. All the music. All the news. Hi, FM. We're looking at St. Petersburg. This is uh, a magisterial study of the history of St. Petersburg. It's a beautiful book with lots of... It's a beautiful cover with all the different motifs you'll find in the history of St. Petersburg. The imperial architecture, the Soviet-looking um, propaganda pictures all on the cover. And it's it's a big book, but this is a big city. St. Petersburg was built by Peter the Great on marshland where the, the Neva River empties into the Baltic Sea. Peter the Great, as a young Russian czar, wanted to bring his country into the 
the world of European power and sophistication. And he wanted to move his capital from Moscow to a place where there was a window to the rest of Europe. And he wanted to create a European city. So in 1704, they started building this city on marshland. It's only 300 and something years old. 1703 it was started. It only is, it's just over 300 and something years old. But the city itself has gone through so much uh, history, so much Russian and also world history has happened within the city. Um, then the people behind the city, starting from Peter the Great onwards, have huge characters. We have m- momentous events. Just to read a little bit from the book, the very, very beginning of the story of St. Petersburg. The first phase of building corresponded to the period of the Great Northern War, during which Peter was on the defensive. General Kronhoit's large Swedish force was camped threateningly on the northern side of the Neva River, while Vice-Admiral Nummers, commanding a flotilla, lay at anchor in the bay. The Russians soon gained a foothold on Kotlin and started to construct the fort of Kronstadt to guard the approaches to the delta. Despite gains against the Swedish, there was no escape from the bitter southwest wind that blew up the Gulf of Finland towards St. Petersburg, first mentioned as such in a letter written to the Tsar towards the end of June 1703. Two months later, the settlement suffered its first blood, which was natural and human adversaries. Sorry, with such natural and human adversaries, the outlook was bleak. Peter's priority was to engineer a fort to protect the settlement. Styled on the impressive citadels devised by Louis XIV's celebrated military engineer, the Marquis de Vauban, the Peter and Paul fortress was, in the first instance, constructed of earth and wood. St. Petersburg's handwritten newspaper, the Vedomosti, reports that 20,000 sappers toiled to build the fort during that first summer. Add the hundreds of fellers and loggers floating tree trunks to the site, and you had, in the middle of a barren wilderness, a population explosion. The Tsar summoned Russian, Tartar, Cossack, Kalmuk, Finnish, and Ingrian laborers, who were joined by Swedes and Livonians, fleeing towns devastated by the war. Peter sent an order to Prince Romodanovsky, mocked Tsar in Peter's all-drunken assembly, and head of the newly created secret office, to reassign 2,000 criminals destined for Siberia to St. Petersburg to to work on the fort. Toiling in the utmost misery, laborers lacked food, housing, and even adequate tools. Without wheelbarrows, they transported earth, scarce thereabouts, in the skirts of their clothes, and in bags made of rags and old mats. The fortress was completed in five months. The bodies of workers killed by malaria, scurvy, dysentery, or Swedish attack were wrapped in muslin sacks and packed into cavities in the foundations. Reasonable estimates for the human cost of the initial building of St. Petersburg ran to 30,000 deaths. The fort 
was the impressive beginning of a settlement that was officially named St. Petersburg after the Tsar's patron saint on the Feast of St. Petersburg, the 29th of June, 1703. Informally, it was referred to as the capital by September of the following year, that's 1704. Upon hearing the news, Charles Twelfth of Sweden declared, Let the Tsar tire himself with founding new towns. We will keep for ourselves the honor of taking them later. That's the very beginning of St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg has always felt like an impossible metropolis, risen from the freezing mists and the flooded marshland of the river Neva on the western edge of Russia in 1703. It was a new capital in an old country. This city in its successive incarnations, St. Petersburg, Petrograd, Leningrad, and once again St. Petersburg, has always been a place of perpetual contradiction. It was a window onto Europe and the Enlightenment, but so much of the glory of Russia was was created here, its literature, music, dance, and for a time its political vision. It gave birth to the artistic genius of Pushkin and Dostoevsky, Tchaikovsky and Sostakovich, Pavlova and Nureyev, yet for all its glittering palaces, fairy tale balls and enchanting gardens, the blood of thousands has been spilt on its snow-filled streets. It has been a hotbed of war and revolution, a place of siege and starvation, and the crucible for Lenin and Stalin's power-hungry brutality. In St. Petersburg, author Jonathan Miles recreates the drama of 300 years in this absurd and brilliant city bringing us up to the present day when, once more, its fate hangs in the balance. This is an epic tale of murder, massacre and madness, played out against squalor and splendor. The book is a remarkable portrait of the city, its people, its history, its artistic genius, and it's a city filled with palaces, filled with ordinary Russian lives, and it's a city that's gone through all of Russian, you know, all of contemporary Russian history for the last 300 years. I'm not going to have time to get to the second Russian book, which is a novel called Zoo. We're going to have to keep that for next week because we're going to be joined online very, very soon by Richard Pierce, who's the author of Nicole. We're just trying to get him on the lines right now. Nicole is the name of a shark, a great white, who lives off or lived off the South African coast. Uh, great whites are a protected species off the South African and in South African waters. And part of the story of Nicole is how that protection uh, has extended beyond just South Africa. Uh, covered by a CITES that's uh, a CITES uh, it's an international organization that regulates the trade in animals uh, that protection for sharks has become an international an international gu- uh, guaranteed protection the the, the author Rich, uh, Richard Pierce has been a shark conservationist for over 20 years. He was the chairman of both the Shark Trust and the Shark Conservation Society for over 10 years. He's recently rejoined the trust as a trustee. He's also authored several books on sharks. And then, independent of sharks, he's written about rhino poaching in a book called Poacher's Moon, 
An Elephant's Abuse in Captivity, a book called Giant Steps. He and his wife, Jackie, are confirmed nomads. They spend half the year in South Africa. Their love of life, wildlife, takes them to the bush at every opportunity. We're just waiting to get Richard on the line so that we can interview him. I see Craig shaking his head. Um, as soon as he does come in, we'll be able to take Nicole uh, out of the page and bring her, so to speak, into the studio. While we wait, let me talk about the book Zoo. This is the Russian, the, this is a novel set in Russia. Um, it's, it's historical fiction. The zoo is narrated, it's by, it's written by Christopher Wilson, it's published by Faber and Faber. The zoo is narrated by a damaged 12 year old, a Russian boy called Yuri Romanovich. Zip it. He's the son of a professor of veterinary sciences attached to the capital zoo, the Moscow Zoo. His mother, a doctor, has been absent from the household since he was five. Yuri has been in some accidents which really did quite a bit of damage to him. As he explains, I am damaged, but only in my body and mind, not my spirit, which is strong and unbroken. Physically, everything more or less healed, but... There are some breaks in my brain, mostly in my thinking. He is different from the other boys, guileless, simple-seeming, taking things at face value. He also has an effect on people that makes him rather uncomfortable. I attract confessions strongly from all directions. I only have to show my face in public, and total strangers form an orderly line like a quascue to spill their secrets into my ear. Writing in 1954, Yuri's story begins the year before, when his father is taken away by two officers of the, from the Ministry of State Security on a medical call and insists on taking his son along with him, explaining that the child, the simple child, can't care for himself. Dad is a veterinarian, but the patient he is being asked to see is human, a very important human, having lost all faith in his doctors. Now, this patient will only trust himself to veterinarians, and he is important enough that even such strange whims are humoured, whatever he says goes. Even Yuri notes the strong resemblance the patient has to comrade Iron Man. Of course, it is Stalin, already seriously ill and having recently suffered a stroke. Of course, there's little that Dad can do, and he is soon enough removed from the scene as well. But the sick old man takes a shine to the simple boy and appoints him food taster technician first class, assigned to sample everything before the old man consumes it. This is not a new position, but those who previously held the position all proved to be highly allergic to toxins, which surely one would hope would be a job requirement. So Yuri finds himself in Stalin's innermost circles during Stalin's final days, and witnesses the power struggles Stalin's final outbursts and the great leader's apparent ignominious end. Yuri befriends several of Stalin's stand-ins, those who have to look and play the part when the great leader has to be seen somewhere he can't be. And several from Stalin's inner circle want Yuri to essentially spy on the dying man for them. Eventually his successor, sorry, eventually Stalin also gives Yuri a letter, a last will and testament, in which he names his successor a document whose existence others know of and are very interested in. 
notably Lavrenti Beria, who is the head of the secret services in Russia. Stalin's death both is and isn't quite like the historical record, and even with Comrade Iron Man out of the way, Yuri isn't out of the woods yet. His possible knowledge of the letter and where it's hidden means he remains a person of interest to everyone around. But his damaged body and simple appearing mind and ways prove to be just enough to get him out of that situation and get him home. This is a historical fiction. It's very much uh, similar in the approach to the curious incident of the dog in the night time, but we're dealing not just with domestic drama in suburban England, but with political intrigue in the inner circles around um, Stalin. So that's the book Zoo. We have a brief uh, interlude right now, uh, and then we'll try to see if we can get Richard Pierce on the phone in Cape Town. <laughs> Stay relevant and up to date. This is 101.9 High FM. Okay, this, this is Stephen Kravitz. We've managed to get um, Richard Pierce on my cell phone so we can have the interview about the book Nicole. Welcome to High FM, Richard. Good morning. Good to be here. Um, we, uh, we, I've got so many questions I want to ask you. Uh, I've done an introduction to you already. I've read a bit of your bio and shared some of, shared, shared some of my thoughts about the book with people. That it's a very, very important book in terms of South African wildlife and conservation. Also in terms of scientific research. Uh, all about one of our greatest wildlife species, the great white sharks. I'd like to jump straight into the interview. Please, can you introduce Nicole to our listeners? Who is Nicole and what propelled her to such fame? Nicole is a great white shark, a female, obviously, uh, and she made an epic journey from South Africa to Australia and then back again, which was 22,000 kilometers. And she navigated the whole journey with literally pinpoint accuracy. Which is an extraordinary thing. If you think about humans, we probably couldn't navigate ourselves across 20 kilometers. She navigated herself through 22,000 kilometers of open ocean. And she went from, as I said, South Africa to Australia and back. And you have to ask yourself why. Yes, Uh, that was my next question. (laughs) Okay. Well, one of the best guesses is that it was to do with reproduction. Uh, that every now and again one of these animals makes a journey like this in order to diversify the, the gene pool. So that's probably the best guess. But the fact that you say uh, the best guess means that we still have a lot of research to do around our marine wildlife. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the very, very many things Nicole did is, is she helped to trigger a whole lot of subsequent research. Uh, so although Nicole's journey and Nicole answered many questions, it left many, many, many more to ask and to be answered. Uh, and, and she really did help focus interest on her species and help to trigger lots of the subsequent research that is discovering more and more about these animals all the time. But we still know precious little uh, in terms of the overall, uh, what we need to know about these animals. How did 
Nicole navigate your way there and back? And what was the time frame? What, how much, how, how many months are we looking at? It took her 99 days to make the outward journey. Uh, and how did she navigate? Again, we don't know. We have to, we have to guess. We have to hypothesize. But if you think about going eastwards, then it, it could be the sun was helping her because as long as the sun came up, uh, in front of her every night and set behind her every night, she always knew she was going the right way. It could be magnetic clues. It could even be the stars because she spent a lot of her time within a very short, uh, within a very shallow, uh, you know, she was very shallow. So she was very close to the surface. So she could see things. So it may well be a combination of, of all three things. But what is sure, however she did it, she navigated with pinpoint accuracy because when she got back to South Africa, she turned up a few hundred meters away from where she'd been tagged. Uh, all that time later, she turned up in August and she was tagged in November. So an incredible thing, really, to turn up back in the same place after all that time. How did you get involved in Nicole's story and with sharks in general? Because you've had an even longer association with shark conservation. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Um, well, the Nicole story had always sort of fascinated me and, and I'd always wanted to tell it. But I'd always been a bit frightened of it in a way because, you know, what we've got here is, is one fish swimming 22,000 kilometers through an awful lot of water. And so it was a bit of a challenge to turn that into a story that I hope grips people and makes them want to turn to the next page. Uh, And that sort of, I guess that delayed my doing this story because I just didn't quite know what to do. And then eventually I decided, without wishing to make a a ridiculous pun, I decided to jump in the deep end and do it anyway. And the readers will have to judge, but I think it works. the, uh, how did I get involved in sharks? Very, very young. When I was a kid, uh, my parents lived in Kuwait in the Arabian Gulf. I was at school in Britain, and it was a horrible, cold uh, Easter term in the Northern Hemisphere, wet, cold, miserable, rainy, grey. I was looking forward to flying out to Kuwait uh, for my Easter holiday and swimming in warm water under blue skies. And the first thing that happened when I got there is my mother said no swimming on the beach outside our house because there had been a shark attack. Now, to an eight-year-old, that's really exciting. So I spent most of that holiday sitting on the wall, uh, waiting for a shark to come along and gobble someone up. Uh, sadly, it didn't happen, so I was disappointed. Um, but I was kind of hooked from that moment onwards. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's been a lifetime obsession. Um, how did you recreate the details of Nicole's outward journey? Okay, it's so it's very then, detailed in the book. It's, it's not only Nicole's story. Nicole would have traveled to Australia and back independent of anyone else. But we needed, we needed people who could record that and when they got that research information to make it public. Who, who are these people? There were two main protagonists. 
One was a guy called Michael Skoll, a Swiss guy who was working in South Africa at the time this all happened. And he was doing a fascinating thing. He was one of the first people to use photography as an identification tool. If you take a side-on picture of any shark, but particularly the, the bigger the fin, the better, of a shark's dorsal fin, it's like a human fingerprint. Uh, it's an identification tool, and it's quite unique to each animal. So Michael was identifying sharks and logging the details by taking side-on pictures. So it was through his work that we were able to know Nicole had come back because he photographed her both before she left and when she came back. So he was one of the main protagonists. And the other one was a, a Mexican guy called Dr. Ramon Bonfil. And he uh, was working for WCS in New York at the time. He came up with the money... Uh, that, that uh, bought all the tags that were fitted to... Nicole was part of a program, so tags were fitted to not just her, but to many sharks. So those were the two main protagonists, but there were others. There were a whole bunch of really fascinating guys down here who are in, in the book as well. A guy, a guy called Stefan, who actually tagged Nicole. A guy called Ryan Johnston from New Zealand, who was involved in the program. But uh, you'll, you'll, they'll have to read all about it. We need yes. them to buy this book. Yes. We need them to buy this book because part of the money is going to shark spotters that helps keep sharks and humans swimming in the same water comfortably together. So it, it has another value, this book. We, we hope that the sales will do some good because money's going to a good cause. As soon as I received my copy of the book, my children at home saw the book. They saw the shark fin on the cover. They were absolutely thrilled with the book that had sharks as the main theme they want to read it or have it read to them they page through and they look at the pictures of the shark they are absolutely enchanted with this with 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 the book it's beautifully produced there's something for everyone in it it is a gripping narrative uh, but there's also a lot of scientific connections as well and it's the pictures are magnificent. Straight Nature's done a, a beautiful, beautiful job. So, yes, people, if you do want to find a really good book for your children that will keep them interested in the natural world around us, give them a sense of the importance of conservation, Nicole by Richard Pierce is, it's, it's, it's a, it's an absolutely Invaluable investment in your children's nature education. Now, I want to push that as well. Now, an another question. Why do we have to preserve the great white? We, we need to preserve the great white and everything else in the ocean uh, for our own good, because without healthy oceans, we don't have a healthy planet. We can't allow the health of the oceans to break down. They're kind of part of the, if you like, the breathing system of the world. Great whites are apex predators, so they're the top of the, they're the, top of the food chain. Uh, and, and apex predators are part of the, the, the ocean health system. I don't want to start using scientific words and, 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 and so on and so forth, but in our own interest, we need oceans that have ecosystems that work, and, and apex predators and great white sharks at the top of the tree are a very important part of working ecosystems. So we need to look after them. We, we do need to look after our world, and we need to look after the natural world a lot, lot, lot better than we are now. And, and with Nicole, one of the things I've tried to do is to present science in a way that people can easily understand it, because most people are not scientists, and to present the arguments as to why she's important in a way that kind of grabs people. Because, you know, if, if we get too far away from nature and we forget that all we are is mammals, then I think we're headed for the edge of the cliff. So Nicole is important, and everything in the natural world is important. 
Where, where can South Africans see great white sharks? Uh, you're really lucky in this country. Um, I'll come at it another way first. If you go to Mexico or California or, or Australia to see great whites, you've got to go a long way. You've got to go several hours to, to find them. Here, if you go to Hanspai in the Western Cape, um, just a bit uh, west, uh, east, east of Cape Town, you can see them in an hour of leaving shore if you're lucky. So you really are lucky here. And in Mossel Bay, the same thing is true. And in False Bay, the same thing is true. So you've got kind of three hot spots where you can, you can go on a boat, get out and go and see them and either look at them from the boat or get in a cage and look at them underwater. And let me, let me tell uh, people listening, seeing a white shark underwater is one of the most extraordinary wildlife experiences you can have and it's accessible to you guys it's available to you guys it's something everybody that can get into a cage should do okay we're going to just ask all our listeners to sit at the edge of their chairs or their seats in their cars because we've got an ad break and i've got more questions for richard pierce the author of nicole the true story of a great white shark's journey into history straight after this break Frequency like no other. 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book. It's Stephen Kravitz in conversation right now with Richard Pierce in Cape Town. He's, he's sitting in his publisher's office in Cape Town. We're discussing his book, Nicole, which is about the world's most famous great white shark. Why was Nicole named Nicole? Well, I'm sure everyone's heard of Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman is uh, a very famous Australian slash Hollywood actress. She happens to be a shark fan and, and even particularly more so a great white shark fan. And I have a sneaky suspicion that Ramon, the lead scientist on the thing, is kind of a bit in love with Kidman. And uh, so when he discovered that she was a great white shark fan, he decided to name what had been called Shark P12 because it was Your, your previous books, Poacher's Moon and uh, Big Steps. Giant Steps, yeah. Sorry, Giant Steps. What are they, your yeah, Giant Steps, what are they about? Poacher's Moon, well, okay, what, what I try and do with all these stories is to, is to take real animals, real stories, and, and treat them like adventure stories, you know, um, and treat, treat them like thrillers to make people want to read them, and hopefully attract people who are interested in what people who are not normally interested in wildlife. So the Poacher's Moon is a true story of, of two rhino that were poached in the Western Cape um, on a reserve, and they survived. They had their horns hacked right out of their heads, but they're still alive today, and I've got my fingers crossed that the female might actually even be pregnant. So the Poacher's Moon tells the story of, of rhino poaching uh, along uh, using those two animals as the vehicle. And then Giant Steps is a similar kind of idea. It's two actual elephants that have lived uh, extraordinary lives. Um, one of them, their, his family was killed all around him in one of the last culls in the Kruger. And then he went on to become very famous. Um, several listeners will probably have seen a film called Mr. Bones. Well, Bully, one of the elephants in my book, uh, was, was one of the stars of Mr. Bones, the Schuster film. So, again, it's two real animals, just like it was with two real rhinos. It's two real elephants. And I hope that by gripping people and sort of taking them down a true, real adventure story, along the way, they get interested in wildlife and they get some of the messages, which is, guys, we've got to look after these animals. Uh, what are you currently working on? I'm currently working 
Cuddle Me, Kill Me. Uh, and this is potentially by far the biggest of the four projects. It's, it's to do with the breeding of, of predators, apex predators, lions in captivity. And what's happening in South Africa is, is that lions are being bred on a very, very large scale. Um, and uh, it, it's one of these practices which I think is probably actually wrong because we shouldn't be breeding a, an iconic wild species like, like chickens or pigs, uh, which is what's happening. Um, and, you know, their bones are ending up in the Far East um, being sold as, as bones for tiger wine. So they're running out of tigers, so they're now using lion bones. So the next book, Cuddle Me, Kill Me, is an investigation into um, the, the breeding of lions in captivity. And it starts off with two real animals, with two lions that were rescued uh, from this, this, this industry. I read the book. I've discussed a lot of Nicole with Matolin. We've discussed how terrible it is that people eat shark fin soup and that thousands, millions of shark are killed every year just for the fin. But what can we do? We can buy the book. We can read it. We can make our children aware. I actually encourage every single school library to get copies of Richard Pierce's books because they are very, very well written and they create an awareness of the environment around us. They present the moral issues very clearly. Once we've read the books and we are aware, what more can we do? Okay, look, this is a really great question and I'm, I'm so glad you asked it because the internet is an incredible empowering tool. Not only can you go on the internet and learn a lot of stuff, but you can go on the internet and play your part at no cost from your own house in campaigning. You can sign petitions, you can pick a species and follow that species and, and get involved in that species, you know. Every time there's a campaign, you can sign up to it. So everybody that, that's, that's got, uh, got the internet can, can get involved in campaigning for wildlife. And that's what I would encourage people to do with Nicole, but not just with Nicole, you know, with, with the lions, with the elephants, with the rhinos, with every species. Because let me give you, you guys a really chilling figure. In the last 40 for about 45 years, we've lost over 50% of this planet's wildlife. Now that, you know, if you just stop and think very slowly about what I just said, in less than 50 years, we've lost more than 50% of the planet's wildlife. If we go on that way, these guys are only going to exist in pictures. And, and we are going to be responsible. You know, we've been here 200 million years, man, you know, as a species. Nicole's species, sharks, have been here for 450. So we've been here five minutes, and here we are wiping everything out because we're too greedy and there's too many of us. So this is a subject which I get hugely emotional about because, uh, you know, I, I want all these animals to be there for my children, grandchildren, and for everybody else, and for the sake of mankind because the further we get away from nature... I really believe the closer we get to the cliff edge. Richard, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I will get, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to tell everybody I know. I'm, I'm working, I'm a principal at a school. I've told the, the life science and the natural science teachers about the book, Nicole. I think we've got to make everyone around us more aware about the, the dangers we have of losing our, our wildlife and to be more aware. Thank you for producing the book. Congratulations. And it should do very well. Keep up your good work. I'm, I'm going to put my name on the list to review your next book, Cuddle Me, Kill Me. Uh, and thank you so much for being on Chayatim this morning to share your story with our listeners. Stephen, thank you. You're a star. Keep interviewing the right people. Thanks. Cheers. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.